Welcome to the Transparency Project on the Inside Lunch Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. That's 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin, and today we have a uh, special broadcast. We're going to be talking... Uh, about the news media. One of the tools families of victims of murder and suspicious death can utilize to keep their loved one's story alive is the media. Coverage can help to produce investigative leads and or put pressure on the handling police agency to be more aggressive in their investigation. However, as many of the families who are victims or survivors of victims of homicide or suspicious death find out, that can sometimes be easier said than done. To help us better understand how to work with the media, we are pleased to have investigative reporter Glenn Meek on the show today. Glenn is a freelance writer and former television investigative reporter in Las Vegas. At various times over three decades in Vegas, Glenn has worked for ABC, CBS, and NBC television affiliates as well as serving as associate editor of The Now Report, an online news service based in Las Vegas. While he generally covered cops and courts as a reporter, Glenn also took a mid-career break from journalism and served as a staff investigator for the Federal Public Defender's Office for seven years. Working inside the court system, he once covered as a reporter. Glenn, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Denny. Yeah, we uh, were going to do this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the weather interfered, and the whole uh, <laughs> uh, blog talk system crashed, so so we're giving it another shot. Uh, yeah, the more sophisticated the technology, the more opportunity for an error, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And and what is uh, what is your weather like today in Vegas? Uh, it's hot, but it's not terribly hot. It's about 104, 105, so we'll, we'll probably put on a sweater. You know, um, <laughs> it's not really hot here until it gets over 110, <laughs> but it's, it's warm. But it, and it's a dry heat. Yes, it is. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> Usually. Okay. What, uh, maybe to start line, what, uh, can you compare working as an investigator in the judicial system to your experiences covering covering it as a reporter? Sure, I can compare it. Uh, the comparison I would make would be night and day. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was astonishing how much I learned once I started working as an investigator with the Federal Public Defender's Office, how much I didn't know about, you know, uh, what went on in the courtroom, what went on in a criminal case, especially with regard to defending one against the United States of America. Um, you know, I think people have recently got sort of a sense of that here uh, where we had this, uh, this major federal case involving these, uh, these ranchers who had, you know, protested uh, the government. And, you know, the government had said that they went well, well beyond protesting, that they, uh, you know, essentially, you know, threatened uh, the lives of the federal officials who were trying to round up these cattle which were trespassing on on government land but anyway uh, you know i think a lot of people who had never seen uh, a federal trial never seen a federal case never thought of the government as being let's say their adversary um suddenly you know we're in a position to see that and um you know again you know i don't believe in i believe in you know government for the people and by the people and so i don't believe that the government is in, in general an adversary but it but if you cross them, I mean, if you're, you're, you know, you're indicted, you're facing uh, legal challenges. Uh, one of the things I learned was many, many of the things that the, uh, you know, criminal defense attorneys had told me as a reporter were true, that it is extremely difficult uh, to fight the United States of America. I mean, they have all the resources in the world. And, you know, Generally, you know, they're not picking names out of a phone book uh, to prosecute people, but sometimes innocent people do get prosecuted, and sometimes, you know, the wrong people are on the on on the side of the law where they have to defend themselves. And it's extremely difficult uh, because of the of the resources that are available to a, 
you know, all these federal investigative agencies. So that was the first thing that I learned that was different it, you know, than what, maybe what I thought it was. Yeah, you know, right now it's been in the news quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about this uh, Paul Manafort trial. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that Russia uh, investigation thing. And now there's a case, uh, and I, did, I didn't realize this, that they, they claimed that once the case actually gets into federal court, there's like a 98% conviction rate. I mean, that, yes. that, it was not, it's 97 plus, so I think it rounds off to 98%. <laughs> God, that's a scary thought. Um, and, you know, apparently from, from the coverage I've uh, I've seen on that, they, uh, you know, they think that Manafort was just being pressed to uh, to get to Trump and so on and so forth, and that uh, I guess he refused it so far to make a deal. So if he's convicted, maybe he could... Uh, Maybe he'd want to do something then to try to uh, avoid a prison time. But anyway, it's a uh, that yeah, that's quite a thing. And the the government, like you say, has the resources that uh, you know can scare the heck out of you. And and they do exactly what you're talking about there. I mean, that is that is. In fact, I was talking to a guy the other day as a criminal defense lawyer, and he talked about what they called. Uh, have you ever heard this term, diesel, diesel therapy? No. Um, it, it refers to the old days when the marshals used to, like, you know, pick you up in a, uh, in a bus and, and take you all over the country. Let's suppose, you know, you got indicted in New York, but you're living in Las Vegas. Well, I mean, it might take them, you know, weeks to get you from Las Vegas to uh, New York. Now they have planes, which, you know, it's different. They do have, they really do have Con Air. Or, uh, the marshals has a, a, an air fleet that, that takes these guys around. But, but the point of it was, they would take you to every lousy little jail and park you there for a day or night or whatever. And then, you know, feel like by the time you got to where you were going to have your first hearing in this criminal case, you were ready to deal. <laughs> you know, you have yeah. a taste of what it's like <laughs> to, to be behind bars and in, in not so nice of places because, you know, they have contracts as they collect these guys and, and, and bring them to different places. You know, they park them in, in different, you know, uh, local jails and whatnot. So, yeah, they used to call that diesel therapy. You know, after a couple of weeks on the bus, you know, uh, the, the old timers would say, you're, you know, you're ready to make a deal for anything. And, um, you know, so that was another thing that I that I encountered, you know, working within the system. Yeah, what uh, what do you think the, the state of journalism uh, is today compared to, I think a lot of people consider the heyday of TV reporting was the 80s and 90s. Is there a difference? Has there been any uh, uh, changes uh, from then to now? Oh, absolutely. And, and I totally agree with the assessment that the golden era, you know, some people say, oh, gee, it was back in like in the, in the first, first years of television, you know, the 1950s. Well, it really wasn't. The 1950s was very difficult, you know, uh, to get cameras out there. They were bulky. They shot on film. You really couldn't develop the film in the field. It really wasn't until the late 70s and um, the early 80s where you had the, you know, the what they call the minicam in those days technology where, you know, you had instant uh, video uh, either on tape and now it's like, you know, they shoot on memory cards or just internal uh, drives. But in those days, you know, you had tape, it was digital uh, videotape, but it was instantaneous. And so, you know, you had your picture, you didn't have to, you know, run it through the soup, as we used to call it. Uh, and I got in at that, at that area right after the changeover in the early 80s. And it was uh, a glorious time for television journalism anyway, because you had lots of money. These television stations were making money hand over fist. You didn't have the Internet for competition. So, you know, the advertising pie was uh, split up into only, a, you know, a few pieces now it's split up into hundreds of pieces. Uh, so salaries were good. People were making money. And in those days, people sat down. It was appointment television. They sat down at 6 o'clock in the evening and watched the local news because that's really where they got most of their news. Even by then, you know, people were reading fewer newspapers. And now newspapers as actual physical papers are almost non-existent. Uh, and just the other day, I saw that our local paper is going to put up a paywall, and you're going to have to, you know, pay for content on that. They just, you know, it's, the, the advertising is just dollars are just not there like they used to be. 
But when I got into it, it was it was it was just good enough with the with you know with the uh, mi- microwave trucks and the satellite trucks and the uh, you know instant video um, to really be an excellent source of information that people would sit down and watch. And you know, for me, you know, I was very well known here in Las Vegas. It was almost like being a it was it was great. It was almost like being a celebrity in, in, a, in a wonderful town. And then when you went out of town, you, you didn't have to worry about being a celebrity. You could let your hair down a little bit. You know, you didn't have to you know worry about somebody seeing you in the wrong place with the wrong person or something. But um, nowadays, you know, uh, I, I recently had lunch with an anchorman here, and we had lunch in a very popular restaurant uh, where a lot of you know youthful people youthful people go. And and nobody recognized that. I mean, you know, in the old days, they would have been probably mobbing him for an autograph, but they just don't, uh, you know. So from from that perspective, in terms of the of the heyday, it was it was great for the journalists because there was money in there, and they were you know spending money on I teams, investigative units, and that sort of thing. Now the money's just not there. A lot of the um, people who were veterans like myself. Uh, you know, they, they can't get jobs anymore. You know, they, 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 nobody wants to pay them. They don't want people that are closer to the end of their career than they are to the beginning. And then you have all these other things that they want, they expect the reporters to do now today. And that is to, you know, not only go out and get the story, but then, you know, put it on all these different platforms. They want Instagram. They want you know, Twitter. Uh, they want you to post something on Facebook. And so, you know, you're, you're spending all this time on all these various social media channels you're not really spending a lot of time going out and digging up the story and interviewing all the people you really need to be interviewing in order to get a balanced story. So those things, even though there's more channels out there for information, uh, it's much more fractured. It's much more fractional. And um, again, a lot of these kids, you know, they're, they're not growing up with mentors because the older people in newsrooms aren't there like they were when I was. You know, we had older people who were, come up in the in the uh, newspaper and radio uh, years, and they were still in the newsrooms, and they were, you know, uh, acting as uh, news managers and mentors. And I just don't think you're getting that kind of mentoring anymore, and they're not paying as much. And uh, the burden is much greater because you have to put all this stuff on, like I said, you know, the Internet and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. That's it. The marketing and the delivery is entirely different than it was in the, you know, the golden era or golden age. Um, I just, can you tell us what is the difference between an investigative reporter and what I'll call a regular reporter? Is there is there a difference? Uh, that's, yeah, there is, and that's a good question because it, it, it sometimes I don't think it's it's sometimes not well-defined, and I think it, it does have a, a, a specific definition. Many people would say, well, don't all reporters investigate? I mean, they go and they ask questions, and aren't they investigating and getting the uh, answers to whatever it is they're looking for? Now, to a certain extent, yes. But investigative reporters do something different. They expose hidden truths, okay? And that is a significant difference. You know, if I go out and I stand in front of a burning building, and I say, oh, this building behind me is burning, and I talk to the uh, fire chief, and he says they hope to have it out in a few minutes, and unfortunately no one was injured. Well, that is not investigative reporting, okay? That is because the truth is not hidden. It's out, it's out in the public. That's breaking news or what we used to call my day spot news. Um, investigative reporting is a completely different animal. There you're going out, and generally the people that you're looking at don't want to talk to you. They have secrets they don't want you to know, and you have to go and find those secrets out, and you have to do it in a fashion that is, you know, is completely uh, on the level that is proper and ethical. You know, you don't have the power, let's say, of you know, prosecutors to threaten someone with prosecution so that they give up the higher person in the chain. You can't do that. You've got to go out there and look for public records and mine public records and interview all sorts of people who uh, know anything about the events you're, you're looking to cover. It's a whole different animal than standard reporting because, again, it's truth you're exposing, but it's hidden truth. It's truth that has to be mined and, and gotten out of people who are reluctant to share that with you. 
So, so then a, an investigative reporter is kind of a cross between a private investigator and a journalist? Yeah. And then often they use the same techniques. Often they use the same okay. techniques. They're looking at public records, okay. things of that nature. Uh, I, I mentioned in the open that uh, a couple of things the media can do to help an investigation move along. Uh, uh, I mentioned, you know, they can put pressure on the police agencies. They can just help keep the story out there and develop leads or tips and so on. Uh, is there anything else that you can think of that uh, an investigative reporter, uh, if, if you can get one interested in your particular case, uh, could do to help? Or is that pretty much the uh, the advantage of getting an investigative reporter to take an interest in a specific situation? Well, I think the general thing that helps when you have an investigative reporter looking into a unsolved homicide um, is what you stated, which is it keeps the story alive. That's the first thing that you do. You, you keep the story alive. You keep it out there so that very often, you know, there's people that have not come forward, you know, and they were reluctant to come forward, and they might have had a reason. Maybe they didn't want to expose someone. And now that person is dead, let's say. Now the person has died of natural causes. They were killed in a car accident. And so the people who would not come forward now no longer have that same reason not to come forward, okay? And when they see that story, it will sometimes compel them to tell what, you know, I have seen that happen. I, uh, I've had that happen to me on a number of occasions where people said, you know, I was going to take this to my grave with me, and the reason I didn't do it is because I had a, you know, a partner in life, and I didn't want them to have to deal with this. But now I don't care. I'm older. I want the truth to come out. You'll very often see that happen. So, yeah, I think the first thing you do is keep the story alive because that is one of the things that's going to happen. The second thing that I think doing a story does, <laughs> and I've had this happen in active, more more so in active than cold cases. But we have done stories about the case, and it has actually generated, uh, you know, talk among the perpetrators. And I have seen situations where cops have actually leaked material deliberately to the media in order to get the perpetrators to start talking because they had their, their phones wiretapped. And sometimes what that'll be is, is, is sometimes false information. So the people would get on the phone and say, hey, look, they're going in the wrong direction. They, they don't know it's us. And then, you know, they capture that on a wiretap. So, you know, again, doing a story can sometimes generate conversation, which will either reach the perpetrators or, you know, will affect the perpetrators. So those two things, I think, are, are very important. But they're all related to the, the the chief reason that you gave, and that's to keep the story alive. Uh, it, it, of course, our audience uh, for this particular show is, is primarily interested in the, the murder, unsolved murder, suspicious death cases. Mm -hmm. And specifically in that regard, how should the family of the victim approach the media? And in particular, an investigative reporter to try to interest him or her in the case? Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways you can do that. Sometimes, you know, just going in the front door is the best way. But when I say go in the front door, you know, don't show up with, with 50,000 documents. I've had that happen. I had to tell people, look, I can't take, take these. <laughs> I can't be responsible for them. I don't know that it's really something that's, that's going to be something we're going to, you know, want to work on. Because to a certain extent, when you're doing that, unless you have the cooperation of the police, you're, you, you know, you're sort, of, you're sort of adversarial to the police. And most of the time, we don't want to be that. We don't want to get in their way, and we don't want to be their adversaries. Now, on the other hand, if they come to us, that's a different story. So there's, there's one way you can do it, is approach the investigator that's on it and say, hey, look, do you think that, uh, you know, do you think that uh, getting the media involved might be helpful? Usually they'll say yes. And then, you know, they can say, well, is there anybody particular? Should I approach him? Do you want to approach him? Well, how do you want to do that? And they might say, well, yeah, you know, I know this guy, Glenn Meeker. I know this guy. Another person here in town, George Knapp, that I worked with over at Channel 8, CBS. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and so, you know, very often it might be a referral from, from the police themselves. Other times, you know, what you do is you, you watch the news 
and pick out the person you think that is, and very often you'll be correct. Look at the person who digs deep. Look at the person on the air who seems sympathetic to these types of stories. Look at the, the person on the air that you'd want to sit down and share their story with. And very often, that is exactly the person you should be sharing it with, the person that you feel most comfortable with when you watch them on the news. But, you know, again, I would, I would caution you, don't show up. I expect that these people are busy. <laughs> and, and, frankly, they do get a lot of flakes that walk through the door with everything, you know, tinfoil hat stories, especially here in Nevada where we've got Area 51, you know. So what you want to do there is send an email and have the story. Um, you know, uh, drop the name of the investigator. Perhaps you know him. Perhaps you work with detective so and so. And very often, what a reporter will do is, oh, let me try that first. Let me pick up the phone. Hey, detective so and so, what's going on with the Jones murder? And he might say, Oh, yeah, we really we need help on that. You know, but unable to move forward. So, you know, again, approach the person that you think is going to do it and do it in a gentle, in a gentle fashion. <laughs> now, you mentioned that, and it certainly makes sense, that you prefer not to be in an adversarial situation. However, a lot of the uh, the cases that we deal with on, uh, on this show are where there's an appearance, at least, to the to the surviving family members that the investigation may have been mishandled maybe out of laziness out of incompetence uh, for who knows why but that uh, the the families are very upset that the police have not in their opinion done an uh, an aggressive investigation in a competent manner um for example and this is just one uh situation that I'm personally involved in where a uh, the case is now 11 years old and it was uh, because of the condition of the remains it was an undetermined cause and manner of death so it's uh, under suspicious circumstances but uh, the, the body virtually rendered no clues or evidence uh, the uh, but there was a lot of stuff going on in this individual's life uh, immediately preceding his demise, and the, the police, for example, the civilian. This was a, a military guy. The civilian police have yet to interview this uh, the dead person's roommate, uh, who was with him uh, just prior to his going missing. Uh, that's tough for most people I speak with to account for that why a, a police agent and one of the first things and I think you're, uh, you do PI work as well, Glenn, is, is uh, you know, you, you, you like to talk to the last people at, mm-hmm. fairly early in the investigation who were with, uh, talked with or corresponded with the, uh, the missing person or the deceased. And uh, so when you have situations where it, it looks like the investigation and the uh, law enforcement end may not have been up to snuff. Um, you almost have to then, if, if you're going to pursue it, uh, end up in an adversarial position. If if the police agency involved is trying to cover for incompetence or for missteps in the investigation, um, they're not going to want to give you records probably uh, and of course they get the dreaded uh, open case exemption that that uh, is, is a handy tool for that to uh, to avoid FOIA requests and so on uh, have you ever run into a situation like that where the agency that you're looking at like you said secret stuff um, may not want to divulge or share what they did or didn't do and and then there's probably no choice you either got to drop it or do your digging with other sources and so on that, that may expose these people or may expose the, uh, the problems with how the case was handled. Yeah. Let me address that. Cause I think it's an important point. When I say that we try not to be adversarial, that is correct, but that doesn't mean that we aren't often adversarial. I've made my, you know, made my bones, so to speak here in town by taking on the police. 
I am probably not a very well-liked reporter in the police department. I have, you know, held these guys feet to the fire time after time after time. And yes, but it is, it is a difficult thing to do because um, it, it, it is very similar to me to criticizing a surgeon. Everybody that loses a loved one in a hospital initially thinks the doctors did something wrong, okay? And what you have to do then is get all the records and have another or maybe several so that you know. <clears throat> it's not just simply one opinion versus another. You've got to have experts. And most people are not expert enough in the investigation of homicide to really know whether the police botched it or not. And that's where the, the issue is. So, you know, I have had, and, and this is where it becomes difficult for investigative court. I've had people come to me with cases that look on first blush like, oh, yeah, they must have screwed that up. Let's say something as obvious as what you just said. About, well, how, they didn't even, uh, you know, talk to the last person. Uh, you know, to see him. Well, I would say that's, I would certainly want to hear a reason on that. And that's just general you know, logic. But there are oftentimes why people don't do things. They don't want to alert somebody or they don't want, you know, they don't want to take a crack at the person until they, they, they feel they have enough information to, you know, to get them to, to lie or to catch them in a lie. They don't want to fix, you know, the, uh, their story in cement until they have, a, you know, they're pretty sure that the story they fix in cement is a false one that they can prove false later. There may be many reasons why detectives do what they do. And there's also many reasons why they can't tell you because of, uh, you know, some of the confidentiality and, and to protect the integrity of the investigation. They can't tell you that. That's what the difficulty is. What you really need is a, sort of like a panel of experts very often to go in there and look at these cases and say, yeah, no, this is a standard thing that should have been done. <clears throat> this is how they should have handled the DNA. This is how they should have collected the evidence. This is the person they should have talked to. This is what they should have asked this person. Yeah, I mean, if you're an expert and you have an expert, you know, in your pocket or standing by, and that's generally what I would do in, in some of these cases. You know, you get somebody, especially when you're actually going to go after the police for not doing a good job, you have to know what you're talking about. Because if you don't, it doesn't help the case. And all you do is upset the police department. And then if they can prove that they had a reason for doing these other things or not doing them, you end up looking stupid. <laughs> so what you have to do in a situation like that is, first off, you got to, you know, take a really good look at the case, listen to what the family is saying. And if you can, go back to these detectives and say, hey, you know, Family came to me. I'm not sure if I want to do a story. Can you explain to me why you didn't talk to this guy? I'm, I'm curious. And see where they go with that. <laughs> if at the end of that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting a little drier. If at the end of that, you know, they don't have adequate explanations, then you get as many of the facts as you can and as many of the records as you can and run it past an expert, retired homicide detective, somebody who, you know, maybe is a, an expert witness a lot of times in some of these types of cases and say, you know, what would you have done? What do you think of this investigation? And then if that person says, yeah, I think they did a lousy job. I think, you know, they, I think they didn't collect evidence they needed to collect when they should have collected it. <clears throat> and it's compromised the case. That's the case. And then you go forward Then you blow it out. You do the biggest, best story you can. Yeah, that's, that's very good. And I'll, I'll refer again to, to this uh, particular case I'm, I'm involved in because I know it uh, obviously better than most anybody else. Um, I, I've had uh, the Transparency Project has three uh, cold case invest civilian cold case investigators that uh, I've, I've asked to review the uh, what we know uh, about uh, the investigation because this guy was military. Uh, the Army CID was involved. You know, they were had their hands in an investigation in the county sheriff's office and uh, so forth. And it's uh, everybody, all three of these uh, people who are totally unrelated, they don't know each other, uh, independently examined the information available and came to the conclusion, two of them, that the the investigation was shoddy uh, or spotty. 
mm-hmm. with a lack of interviews and lack of follow-up. Uh, and one concluded uh, he's a former uh, uh, police officer, retired, that it was uh, clearly a, a case of murder, that there was no question. So we've got uh, two of the three saying that there definitely needed needs still at this point, even though it's been 11 years, there needs to be more investigation done. And one said it was somebody's getting away with murder, and here's who it is. Uh, the uh, So the question is to, to get the story out there. Now, these people, uh, these investigators rendered reports of, of what they concluded and why they concluded it. Um, but now to try to get a the local reporter, there's only one newspaper in this particular area I'm talking about, and they are pretty much beholden to the sheriff's office, you know, to share information with them about active cases and crime reports and blah, blah, blah. So there's no, what I would consider an investigative reporter, uh, in the area that uh, is is willing to kind of stick their neck out and take on that adversarial role, you know, asking why, why didn't you do it? Um, So the only solution then, I I guess, from as far as trying to keep the story alive and and so on and so forth would be to try to get an outside of the area, uh, true invest, not a reporter, but an investigative reporter, uh, uh, interested, uh, someone who's not, you know, going to be intimidated or uh, hold back because they rely on uh, the sheriff's public information office for, uh, for you know, for their articles and so forth. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> and yeah, and that does I, that does that, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a it's it's kind of a sticky situation to do that. I. In fact, this area, including the local cable, the, the, the cable network here does the, uh, they have their news, you know, 24-7, where they, every half hour they repeat uh, different stories. Uh, and they're not investigative reporters either. Uh, so we are we are trying to wrestle with how we can interest someone who's, who's in a position to actually do the job uh, you know, to to stick their nose into it and and go, and it's uh, turning out not to be a very uh, a, a very easy task. Let me put it that way. And no, not at all. You Especially meant, small towns like that. You're right. Yeah, and I, I don't know where where you can go from from there. Now, a bigger town, uh, if I were in Vegas, uh, for example, I it probably would be somewhat easier. You know, with, with the uh, the population of different reporters and so forth. Maybe I could, could, uh, could find someone easier. The uh, you mentioned documents. You know um, what we have uh, done. I'm, I'm representing the the mother of the deceased. Um, we've amassed between what we got from the army under FOIA. Because the army had closed their case, so they no longer had an open case exemption or anything. They 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 fessed up the the records, um, and we obtained because this gentleman was a, a missing person for six months before the remains were found. The local police, not the county, he was missing from the city to begin with. And then they found the remains in the county, so it turned into a county case. But the the city uh, uh, police, because they were trying to find out where where this guy was uh, and where he had been, they got his cell phone records. Uh, mm-hmm. And we were able to get access to those, and they reveal an awful lot of stuff about who was in contact with who and when and uh, the length of the calls and and what was going on with other people while these conversations were taking place. So there was a lot of good stuff, a lot of records. Uh, in fact, I have uh, three file boxes full of, of, of stuff. And I know I, 
I, I mean, I think there's a, a certainly a lot of good information. It raises a lot of questions. Let me put it that way. There's information that raises a lot of questions. Anybody with a, a fairly logical mind would would want to say, how come this happened or how come this didn't happen or or that type of thing. But uh, but I, I could just imagine if I, like, as you were saying, if I showed up at a, a newspaper or TV station office with three file boxes of stuff right. and said, here, take a look at this. Everybody's eyes would glaze over and they'd probably throw me out. Yeah, I don't think they'd throw you out, but they'd probably uh, ask like a cab call for you. But, you know, <laughs> I, and, and that is part of it. It's, it's not like daunting when you see it and think about having to go through that, especially for someone like myself who has done that initially at the beginning of their career. And found out there was good reason why, uh, you know, the, the, the cops gave up on it. Or it was a good reason why they just didn't have, for example, we've seen two major cases broken recently, unsolved homicide, multiple homicide cases, the Golden State case and uh, the buying, torture, kill, BTK in, in Wichita, where I actually spent some time and uh, actually talked to some people about that case. Um, and, and, and there you have situations where, you know, uh, improving DNA technology and things of that nature are allowing these people to take some of these cold cases and, and, and get and crack the case, which they did in, in Golden State. You know, without that technology, no matter how good a job those guys were doing, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they weren't going to crack it. They didn't. They simply didn't have the clues. They didn't have. They didn't have the methodology to extract the information from the clues. The clues were there. DNA was there, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't have these national databases that people put their DNA in, you know, that that would might be relatives of the killers, that they can, you know, with familial DNA, track that down. This type of technology just didn't exist in, in some of those older cases. So sometimes that, you know, these guys didn't do a bad job. They just didn't have the technology that was necessary to crack the case at the time, which is another good reason to at least have that story. Say, well, let's, let's go back and do that. <laughs> We've had a, a couple like that here in Las Vegas. Well, you know, the media has gotten on board and done stories kind of almost the opposite where people have been, let's say convicted. There was a woman who was convicted of killing a guy and, and she was finally released from prison. And, and most, a lot of the people that I knew were really good investigators and former FBI, uh, you know, special agents, they believe she did not kill the guy. And then had they preserved certain certain evidence, they would have been able to eliminate her as a suspect. But she did a lot of time in prison. It was recently released, but really that shadow is still out there. They, they don't know. But certainly, and again, maybe, you know, you know, in certain old cases, they didn't even collect that kind of evidence because they didn't know there was any that in the future there would be a technology that would help them unlock it. So, you know, there's a difference between, yeah, not not getting the case solved and, you know, not solving the case because you're goofing around or not smart or, you know, you're Barney Fife as opposed to Lieutenant Columbo. And that's what you really, as a reporter, that's what you have to watch out for. You know? uh, I think we might have a caller on the line here, Glenn. Let me check. If we do, we'll just see what we can do. Uh, is there a caller from 843 area code on the line with us? Yes, it's it's someone who is late to the game. <laughs> I'm oh, so sorry. Delilah, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, at the risk of, of not having the opportunity to listen to the first half of this episode, and I apologize to both of you, my my time just got away from me. That's all I can say. But I think, you know, one question that I had for for Glenn and, you know, just knowing a little bit about your background and listening to a little bit of what you've just spoke about, um, you know, when, when, when families come to you with their information or with their stories, what do you feel like mainstream media is always the best way to go? Or are we seeing a little bit more reaction or uh, more traction, should you say, from um, going online? No, I think that's where it's at. I think online is where it's at. I think mainstream media is generally drying up. And what you're going to do is you're going to have an amalgam 
<laughs> what used to be mainstream media, you're going to have an online news services which may, you know, take the names but not the forms of the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. But you're going to have people. We're always starting to see that. You're going to have then people who are television journalists go to work for these organizations, and they're going to do text and they're going to do videos and all sorts of things. But it'll be one news organization as opposed to a newspaper or a television station or a, uh, a television network. It'll simply be a, a news source, a news organ. And all of that will be distributed over the web. Uh, I mean, broad, broadcasting <coughs> over the air is practically non-existent. You know, cable is kind of uh, shaky right now. Uh, many people cutting the cords. It's all going to be Internet-based at some point, I think. Um, and again, what you're going to do is you're going to see the strongest survive, and then they are going to morph into something that is uh, not a newspaper, not a television station, but a news source that does both text, headline-type reporting, and then maybe more in-depth reporting uh, of, of significant issues. So, yeah, no, I think – and I think, again, that is probably where the, the family should start looking. I mean, you look at this uh, podcast uh, – was it called Serial? About this, you know, this guy who was a killer, and I think that's resulting in maybe him getting a new trial. <laughs> You've had some, uh, you know, HBO did a documentary on Durst. That was, you know, that wasn't a, a standard network thing. Um, yeah, I think the, I, I think the uh, the alternative approaches are really the way to go right now. Well, absolutely, and especially since, you know, mainstream is basically streaming online as it is with um, even with regular newscasts and and television shows and and so forth. So I think we're seeing that transition. Has there, you know, what kind of bumps in the road have you run into with this transition or if you've had any? Well, yeah, I mean, um, (laughs) for me personally, you know, I don't. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> I don't visit Facebook very often. I don't Instagram. I don't tweet um, because I don't care for it as a social media. And so, you know, people look at me and they say, "Well, you know, this guy's a dinosaur. We don't. We, we need, you know, kids coming on that will put stuff out over Twitter and all this stuff." And I appreciate that, and I, I understand why they're doing that. But I just don't. I just don't care for social media. I I don't want to be connected to everybody all the time. I don't want to see somebody's you know cocktail that they got at you know uh, some sort of Tahitian restaurant. I don't want to see people's food, uh, no matter how nice the presentation is, being sent to me uh, via text photo constantly. I just don't like that stuff. So people like myself who are more interested in actually doing the job and doing the journalism are being marginalized for that reason. And as we talked about earlier, I don't know how much you heard, um, you know, the pie has been chopped up into so many small pieces. The salaries just aren't there anymore. I mean, the, the salaries are really only there for people starting out in their careers. Um, there's, it, it's getting to, to be where people who are veteran reporters just, uh, you know they, they can't make a living anymore. They, you know, and, and they have to go and they have to go do something else because they got families and mortgages and car payments. You know. Exactly, and I've seen you know I've seen people graduating with a journalism degree and trying to break into the TV market, and it's just not there. And what they're expected to do basically is start in a little tiny country town where. Mm-hmm. And you do everything. It's not like you used to be the anchor and that's what you were. Now you're the producer. Now you're the cameraman. And, and, you know, you do it all. And I think it was totally unexpected. And and he was surely taken by surprise. And and basically his past experience didn't mean beans. No, it's not a career I would recommend uh, now, today. You know, um... Certainly, twenty years ago, I would have, I would have wholeheartedly right. recommended it. But you know, yeah, we have they call it what's mixed, MMJs or mixed media journalists. <laughs> and essentially, what that means is, uh, yeah, now because we're so cheap, now because we don't have the advertising, because the advertising is spread all over the internet now. Um, 
there's only so much advertising dollar and it, it's just split up in smaller pieces. And so they have these kids, you know, shooting their own stuff, writing their stuff, voicing their stuff, presenting it on television and editing it in the actual editing, you know, suite or the editing software that's on the computer. When you were doing all those jobs, jobs that used to be done by three different people, um, you know, you can't possibly spend as much time as you need to on getting the, the basics of the story gathered. So something has to suffer, and, and it is. And then what we're seeing is just simply um, less in-depth reporting, and we're seeing lighter fare and more shallow fare uh, generally from the mainstream media. Not that there aren't specific you know, programs out there that are still doing good investigative work. But, you know, it's getting to be the point where, you know, you almost need a patron. You need a Jeff Bezos or somebody, or Elon Musk or somebody, you know, to buy uh, a media organ and pump the money into it to make it work. And there are some places I do see some, some signs of how that, that can change. And there are some places now that they're establishing media companies <laughs> that are essentially charities. They're like, you know, NPR or they're like, you know, PBS. And so, you know, you can pay a salary, but then, you know, corporations can donate money and write it off their taxes so that you don't really have to have advertising anymore. Uh, nobody's going to get rich doing that, but you can pay people a decent salary, and those people can concentrate on getting the news of the day out. And I think you're going to see that as a form, too. I think you're going to see the nonprofit organizations generating news. Right, and and just one last question for you on while you're on the hot seat. When if someone's coming to you with with their case, what is it that you're looking for? What what pixie dust is going to make this a breaking news story, or even make it interesting for the public to react to and maybe do something? Well, that's a good question because you know it depends on the nature of homicide. Somebody comes and says, well, you know. My cousin was killed in a drug deal, and they never caught the guy that killed him. Well, you have to sit there as, as tough as it is to do and say, you know, is anyone going to, I can do this story, is anyone going to care? So you do look at the circumstances surrounding it, <coughs> or, <clears throat> and the circumstances surrounding the investigation. Let's say I have, I just did one when I, a couple of years ago, um, about a uh, young actor who came here. He was, you know, he wanted to be in in the Vegas shows and stuff. And he started working with this uh, boxer, and uh, he, you know, he gets beaten to death. Uh, it's unsolved case, but there's, you know, turns out the kid suddenly, you know, was 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 appearing on insurance forms just before his death. This one is a very fascinating story. Okay. Interesting because it was a kid with stars in his eyes, and he, he never got to where he wanted to be. Uh, unsolved. Um, you've got all these other people that are involved. You know, he was working for, you know, a, a professional boxer. Um, so you got all these really interesting elements. To me, that's that one was ready made, and I did a piece on this to sort of keep the story alive. But you know, the the my cousin got killed by a drug dealer story could be compelling. If the story is not that your cousin got killed by a drug dealer and we don't know which one it is, or if the story is and the cops know who it is and they're not arresting him, that's a compelling story to me. Because now we have something that's even bigger than a murder. We have, you know, you know, we have systemic problems in the police department in 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 in, in getting these crimes solved. Uh, that could be a compelling story, but but you know the, the sad fact is, I mean, you know, uh, with with all these other stories competing for uh, time, uh, something in order to be something that you're going to spend a lot of time on, and maybe have to be adversarial with the cops, um, it's got to be something that's that's a compelling story that people are going to want to, you know, see. Um. D. Ed, I know you uh, didn't hear the start of the show. Uh, Glenn has another commitment. I promised him that uh, we would uh, 
uh, cut him loose so that he can make his other uh, appointment. But uh, so we're running a little short, but uh, Glenn, I, First of all, I want to thank you so much. I mean, this has been very uh, insightful here to uh, to get to get your take and your sharing your expertise uh, with us. And before you before we wrap up, uh, and I should have mentioned this at the start of the show, uh, I forgot. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Glenn is uh, working on a, a project and. Uh, I'm uh, uh, helping him with it, what I can. Uh, would you like to take just a, a few seconds, uh, you know, not tremendous detail, but just kind of tell the nature of what you're working in? Yeah, um, obviously you know all about it because we're working closely together and helping a, a tremendous amount for me as a, I've never, I've done a lot of television journalism, but not um, not book work. And uh, you obviously have a lot of experience in that area. But as it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, yeah. I wouldn't say it's an untold organized crime story, but it's an organized crime story with absolutely Vegas elements and um, some of that some of that stuff that we talked about today. The the changes in uh, you know organized crime going from the old days of traditional you know thugs and capos to you know now we got you know cyber crooks, and so it's it, again don't want to get into too much detail there, but it's I think one of the most interesting uh, organized crime stories that I came across uh, in 30 years of covering uh, courts and cops in this city. So uh, I'm really excited about working on it, excited about working with you on it. And so far, it seems like, you know, the thing is uh, it's getting written and uh, <laughs> I'm having, a, I'm having a blast getting it written. And uh, I think it's going to be a whale of a tale once we're finished with it. I uh, I am on board with you, and I guess I'll just uh, let it go there. But when when uh, the project is uh, near completion or whatever or completed, uh, we'll have you back on again, and then we can share, uh, you know, a lot more with the uh, the listeners as to what it's all about. Uh, but, right. Uh, uh, I do have to be sort of generic at this point until we can get the narrative down. But okay. uh, we're getting there. Okay, well, again, Glenn, thank, thank you so much for being with us, and um, and we'll have you back on uh, maybe some more about the uh, news media stuff or some uh, some more about your project, um, and I'm looking forward to that. And our next broadcast will be on August 21st when we'll profile the 1990 Lover's Lane murders, unsolved murders out of Houston, Texas. So please join us then. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you.